Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $20 on the steel MS-162 or MS-170 chainsaw. Real steel. Offer valid through June 30th, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Welcome into the NFL on Fox podcast presented by Verizon. I'm Dave Hellman. Happy Friday. Happy weekend. Most importantly, happy week 14 to you. It's time once again to dive into our weekly preview of the upcoming NFL slate. We have got we've got a jam packed show because we've got a jam packed weekend. Maybe you've heard. Maybe we haven't talked enough about it. Cowboys and Eagles squaring off once again in the rematch of their division rivalry. We're actually going to talk to a very special guest about that. Michael Vick stopping by the show to talk some NFC East along with several other topics. We're going to get into 49ers Seahawks with my guy, Greg Olson. Chiefs Bills is on the slate this weekend. So much drama surrounding that one. We can get into that. By my count, there are Eight games between teams with some kind of playoff aspiration this weekend. Eight of them. Whether it's division lead that's on the line, whether it's seeding games, you know, fighting to be at the top of the pecking order, or simply just fighting to stay alive in the wild card chase. There is a ton of sta- a ton at stake this weekend. Ravens, Rams, great game. We'll talk about that. Jaguars, Browns. I could go on and on, and I will, but first, let's do it. Let's get it out of the way. Bring it in for all my sickos who truly love football. Sunday is for everybody. Thursday night, especially a Thursday night like the one that started week 14, that's for us sickos, and that's that's what Patriots-Steelers was, and it delivered on the goods. The New England Patriots down the Steelers 21-18, to surprisingly more entertaining game than I thought. Maybe, you know, the, the bars on the floor, maybe just the fact that we saw several touchdowns before halftime gave me, just surprised me to the point that I was entertained. I was expecting this to be like a 10, six type of affair. So to have 39 combined points to hit the over before halftime, we will call that a win surprisingly enjoyable game, even though I wouldn't call it a good game of football. I think we can tell the tale pretty simply. Patriots go up big in the first half. Steelers spend the rest of the game clawing back. They cut the score to 21 to 18 with 12 minutes to play in the game. And these two teams proceed to exchange four punts and a turnover on downs to wind things down. You get the final score of this game in the opening minutes of the fourth quarter. And then we just try to not bumble things up to, to just try to make one less mistake than the last guy. Like I said, I wouldn't call it a good game of football, but close score. You know, we'll, we'll take it close score. 39 points. We'll take it game deciding sequence, which I think says so much was a punt. (laughs) Yeah, that says it all Steelers line up to punt with about five minutes to play. They think they draw the Patriots offside. It was fourth and three, so so the potential penalty 
would have given Pittsburgh a new set of downs close-ish to midfield. They would have had a chance to, to go tie the game, maybe take the lead with under five minutes to play. Instead, the refs say, no, that's not offside. That's a false start. You, you get backed up and they have to punt. They had a couple more shots at the ball. It never truly felt like they were close to it the rest of the way. And so Bailey Zappi outduels Mitchell Trubisky. Zappi gets his third NFL win in his fourth NFL start. First since October of 2022. Started out really hot. Three touchdown passes in the first 20 minutes of the game. Hunter Henry, happy birthday to Hunter Henry. It's a nice way to ring in your 29th year with two touchdown catches in the first half. Pat's got all their points before halftime, and they just kind of held on from there. Shout out to Ezekiel Elliott. Former Cowboy was a workhorse. His best game as a New England Patriot by far. 29 touches for 140 total yards and a touchdown. But it's not just the box score. Two huge plays. He had a 12-yard run at the end that allowed the Patriots to wham the ball over the line to get the first down that helps him ice this thing. And maybe the play of the game hawked down a Steelers linebacker on an interception. It's about the slowest interception return I've ever seen, but Zeke was booking it, man. He got there. He got the tackle prevents a pick six Steelers. Don't score Steelers head coach. Mike Tomlin himself said it was the difference in the game. That is the fun of late season football right there. If you're a sicko, that's the beauty of it. Because six years from now, 99% of people are going to have forgotten about Zeke Elliott's time in New England. But Patriots fans, just imagine the future. Imagine five, six years from now. Next time you're sitting around with some cold ones playing Remember Some Guys, you'll be able to laugh and say, how about that night Zeke Elliott won us the Pittsburgh game? Remember that? God, that was a miserable season. And that is the true joy of being a football fan. Sure. You do it for the championships. You do it for the for the milestones. But man, there's something really fun about remembering a weird game in a crappy season where you had a moment of levity. And that's that's what this is for the Patriots. I don't think it changes much about a bad season, but you can tell how good it feels to get a dub for the first time in nine weeks. They've or the second time, excuse me, they've lost eight of nine. You can see the relief on everyone's faces in new England just to get this win doesn't mean anything in the big picture, but good for them. The real story here is the Pittsburgh Steelers and, and the nightmare that this season is quickly becoming. They were seven and four. They looked phenomenal in playoff positioning. Oh, it's, it's the Cardinals and the Patriots both coming to Pittsburgh back-to-back home games, back-to-back losses. They are the first team in NFL history to lose consecutive games to 10 loss opponents. That's a mouthful. It's a fancy way of saying never before has a team this good lost to two such crappy teams. Their biggest legacy this season, honestly, the way this is shaping up, the thing we might remember these Steelers for the most is the way they're shaping the 2024 draft order with Arizona and now new England, each getting a win over Pittsburgh. The Steelers are essentially handing the number one overall pick to the Chicago bears who own Carolina's draft pick bears have a two game lead in the draft order with five to play. It would take a lot of turnaround on the Panthers part, which I frankly don't see coming for anyone other than Chicago 
to pick first in the draft. So shout out to the Steelers for that. As for the Steelers themselves, months still to play, but man, it looks pretty bleak. They have, they have officially for now, at least we'll see what happens Sunday, but they have for now, at least handed their playoff spot to the Houston Texans. Texans are new to the playoff field. The New York times projects the Steelers chances to make the playoffs has dropped from 51% to 31%. And I can see why every team left on their schedule is at or above 500 fully alive in the playoff race. And three of their last four on the road, it's at the Colts home against the Bengals at the Seahawks at the Ravens tough sledding, man, especially if Kenny Pickett is out for one to however many more games, if you're doing this with Mitchell Trubisky, or maybe they make the switch to Mason Rudolph, just not sure. I see it. It's starting to remind me weirdly of the 2020 Steelers started the season 11 and 0, finished the season 12 and four one and done in the playoffs. Granted that Steelers team was definitely better than this one, but the bottom line is this feels like a team letting a playoff opportunity slip away. Mike Tomlin, after the game, he said they'd bounce back. He was asked why in his very terse Mike Tomlin way. He said, this is what we do. This is who we are. With respect to everything he's accomplished over the years for that organization, I am just not sure that's the case in 2023. All right, let's put Thursday night behind us and get on to Sunday. I teased it at the top of the show. What better way to start this episode than my conversation with Michael Vick, guy that needs no introduction, former number one overall NFL draft pick, four-time pro bowler with the Atlanta Falcons, as well as the Philadelphia Eagles. He's an analyst on Fox NFL kickoff. Absolutely thrilled to, to talk to Michael, not just about his former team, the Philadelphia Eagles, playing the game of the weekend against the Dallas Cowboys on Sunday night. Also, plenty of other topics we covered, the young quarterbacks in this league, topic that he can relate to quite well really enjoyed this conversation check it out all right michael what better place to start with a former philadelphia eagle than this big division matchup on sunday night i know you i mean you were you were part of this rivalry for a while i'm curious uh, you were part of several rivalries during your nfl career dallas philly specifically from your career what stands out to you about this cowboys eagles rivalry when you think about it um, it's all a fanfare during the week. It's like the chatter amongst the fans um, that hypes it up more than anything. And of course, it's a it's NFC East rivalry, um, but it's heightened um, by the fan bases of both sides. It's a lot of Philadelphia Eagles fans out there, a lot of Dallas Cowboys fans out there, and we always had a saying that we don't lose to Dallas, and, and that's the mindset coming in. And you know, it's. Uh, you know, just a mantra that we took on. I, I embraced it. I didn't know anything about it until I got to the NFC East in Philadelphia. And I enjoyed every minute of it. I, I think I came out on top in, in those games uh, for the most part. I won the majority of it. I, I happened to look at your game log before we talked, and you are correct about that. Um, I'm curious. You know, we talk so much about players. You got to block out the noise. Obviously, you can't let that stuff affect you. But I mean, football or Philly is a crazy football town. Like with the emphasis that gets placed on this game, how hard was that to do for you? How hard might it be for, for the Eagles players this week? Well, it's tough playing for the Philadelphia Eagles, you know, just in general, um, the demand 
and, and the appreciation that they have for the team at the same time, you know, I, I think, you know, you know, that in, and the fact that it's a flagship organization, all of these things come into play. And so, you know, it's that added pressure because if you don't win, you're going to hear it on Monday. You're going to hear it on Friday, you know, depending on, um, you know, what happens or Tuesday. And, and so, you know, we tried to always make sure that, you know, we was all on the same page. The preparation was always heightened uh, throughout the week. And I always tried to make sure I was on my P's and Q's um, and knew everything that the Dallas Cowboys was going to try to do when they had, um, you know, I think, um, what is the Marcus Ware and those guys? Um, Orlando Scandrick, they had some good guys on that defense. And so always uh, a tough opponent. And they always came to play. A lot of scrutiny on Eagles quarterback Jalen Hurts this week coming out off of that loss to San Francisco. Honestly, you look at his numbers, and to me, I mean, the, the guy's still playing really well for, for whatever criticism you want to throw at him. I'm curious, as a guy who whose mobility helped him out so much during his career, if Jalen is dealing, if he's uncomfortable, if he's dealing with, with injury issues that are maybe limiting that, how difficult do you think that is if if he's not completely comfortable playing the way he's used to? No, it's tough. Um, I remember when I was a young player, I, I had AC joint sprains and, you know, sprained fingers and it, all these little nagging injuries that, you know, as a, a dual threat quarterback, you endure. But, you know, you're not going to feel as good in week three as you did, did in, in week one. And, you know, in week 12, as you did in week eight. So <clears throat> injuries happen. We learn to play with them and not make excuses. It's easy to go to the podium and say, oh, my shoulder's hurting and I can't really throw it away. I've thrown it over the last couple of weeks. I was watching one of my games, going to sleep, having to catch one of my games last night. Um, it was Atlanta Falcons versus the Minnesota Vikings, the game that the run. Right, right. And so I was listening to uh, I was I can't remember the the commentator's name, but he was saying that um, pretty much you know Mike has two AC joint sprains in each shoulder, um, a bad thumb, you know, and all these things. And I'm watching myself as I fight through it for my teammates, and I would not make an excuse or let anything. Um, deter me from, you know, playing in the football game, regardless of the outcome, accountability was most important. And so it was Marv Albert, by the way. Um, Marv so, got you. yeah, yeah. So, so, the, you know, just to, you know, hear that and understand what was going on, you know, hear that little piece of it and know, like, we fight through injuries and we find a way to make ourselves available. You know, it's funny. I was prepping for this interview and I thought about the run against the Vikings and I was like, I'm not going to ask him about that. He must hear about that a thousand times a day. So it's funny that you were watching that yesterday. It's funny. I caught that late, late night last night. And, you know, I'm the type I stay up late and just I fall asleep watching, watching the tube and it just came on. And I'm like, I didn't make it through the whole game. I, I threw a touchdown pass to Brian Finner at the, at the end of the uh, first half, and I cut it off after that. You know, just to have some sweet dreams. I didn't want to continue. <laughs> it, was a, it was an up-and-down up game, but it was good to go to sleep with a smile on my face. Oh, man, that's awesome. Okay, I wanted to – I actually – I mean, that's, that's where I wanted to go next was early days of your career – number one overall pick for the Atlanta Falcons. 
And what timing to talk to you right now when the number two overall pick, C.J. Stroud, is doing what he's doing. I want to talk about C.J. and Bryce Young, but as a guy who lived that, and you know the spotlight and the pressure that comes with being brought in to change a franchise, I mean, what do you make of what C.J. is doing right now? You know, first of all, it's just, Eric, man, it's so hard to play as a rookie. Quarterback, that is, as a rookie, like, I couldn't fathom that. And the fact that I struggled as a rookie until week 16, um, I really had no indication of what the NFL's speed the the all the, the rhetoric everything what what the communication I I I couldn't I couldn't do it it was too much it was overwhelming and watch these young men um you know some have more success than others step on the field and get it done uh it just goes to show that one he was evaluated um the right way uh and you know shout out to the Houston Texans for making this pick and hopefully, you know, it entails longevity with the, you know, uh, a 15, 18 year career with CJ Stroud. Um, but for to watch him go out and do what he's doing and, you know, play so calm and so poised, uh, it's a credit to, you know, one, the people who's been involved in his, you know, football upbringing. I think they did a great job of making sure he, you know, had the smarts and the wherewithal. Um, to get in and out of the huddle with everything that that entails and find a way to move the chains. Uh, so extremely proud of him. I'm proud of all the young quarterbacks, even, even Bryce Young, um, who hasn't had the best season um, by any stretch, but continues to go out and battle, continues to go out and have the right attitude and learn. And, and that goes a long way. So um, year two, I expect more. Um, obviously, everybody's not the same. And, and so, you know, just to see, you know, CJ doing what he's doing, we got to take our head off to him. Would you, and look, I mean, I, I'm a firm believer in Bryce Young's talent. I'm definitely not closing the book on, on what's going on there in Carolina, but would you have any advice for Bryce as a guy who's been in that position? And look, I mean, it, it can't be easy. You have a coaching change. You've got uncertainty there. And, and for better or for worse, Bryce is the face of that franchise, even as, a 22 year old guy, what would your advice be to a guy who's trying to navigate being better at quarterback in the middle of all of that? Fight to get that next win. Um, getting, getting wins and, you know, having success in the NFL, it, it just breeds so much confidence. And, you know, once you get a little taste of it, just a, a snapshot of it, you know, you, you turn into a different player, you know, you, you become a different, um, you know, quarterback in terms of your preparation, where thinking you like, I want more of that. I want more of that. You know, it's like, you know, uh, something that you just gotta have. It's a necessity. I, I need this win on Sunday, Monday, Thursday. Uh, so get that next win. And as hard as it is, and as hard as it's been, you know, when Sundays are over and you close the, you, you turn that page. You know, you on to the next chapter. And so even though it's a 17 week book of, and, and it's filled with, you know, roller coasters and a lot of turbulence, you know, you've been through worse, you know, and, and so, you know, Bryce, he had a stellar college career, didn't face a lot of adversity, and this is good. We get to see what type of resolve he has. 
One last thing I want to touch on with you, and it's it's good timing because a guy that you threw a lot of touchdowns to, Deshaun Jackson, just announced his retirement. I, I knew he was a good deep threat. I did not realize he had the most 60-yard touchdowns in NFL history. When you think about some of the deep threats that have been in the NFL, it kind of speaks for itself. So for starters, having a, a, a playmaker like that, having an electric talent like that, what does that do for you as a quarterback? It makes the game so much easier. Um, you know, it's crazy because I had to – We was I was in here talking with some of my homies the other day, and, you know, I had to remind them of how I played the quarterback position. I had to cut on 2013 um, Philadelphia Eagles versus the San Diego Chargers at the time. And, you know, I threw for 426 that day, and – DJ had just retired and we was talking about the connection and they was, you know, they had their opinions and I had to just like, check out this game, you know, I'm randomly, just a random Sunday and watch how I did work, you know, watch me do work and me and Deshaun. And so I think me and Deshaun connected like four to five times that day. Um, it was really, uh, you know, easy work, you know, in terms of, you know, making sure that we took advantage of, of what the, the defense gave us. And, and, you know, it was really easy. It was really easy. D-Jack made the game easy for me. He made it so that I can understand it. So I bring that up for a specific reason. And I'm not trying to compare them as players, but it makes me think of, I mean, all those those bombs that you had with Deshaun Jackson, it makes me think of what Tyreek Hill has been doing in Miami this year. What do you think about that performance? And and as a guy who, who has had playmakers like that, what do you think about the conversation around Tyreek Hill as a potential MVP? Tyreek Hill, he's going to always put himself in a position where, you know, he's going to have success. And I'm sorry, man. I got my son in here calling me. No worries. It's, it's, it's daddy doing it right now. It's a family thing. We need to wait. Um, you know, Tyreek Hill has an opportunity to do some amazing things right now. Um, he's put himself in a position where, you know, he deserves this space. Um, he deserves to, uh, you know, be in the MVP race. He know what's at stake. You know, shout out to Tua Tonga by Lord for, you know, giving him that opportunity. Shout out to Mike McDaniels for, you know, finding ways to get the ball into the hands of Tyreek Hill um, when deemed necessary. Uh, it's a big reason why they win a lot of games right now. And the fact that Jalen Ramsey is on the field making a contribution, that offense gets opportunities. Um, and they just get better and better each and every week. And, you know, I can't wait to watch them in the playoffs in the postseason to see how they continue to th- strive, thrive and, and, and make strides. You and me both, man. All right, well, look, we'll let you get back to your son. We do appreciate the time. Hey, I got kind of crazy over here for a minute. <laughs> no worries, man. It was it was so much fun talking to you, Michael. I really appreciate it. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for having me on the show. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. We have talked a lot this week about the Cowboys-Eagles rematch, and rightfully so, but let's not forget to show some love to the team That owns both Dallas and Philly. That's right. The San Francisco 49ers coming off of that drubbing 
of the Eagles. They get to go back home to the West Coast with a big, big opportunity to really seize control of the NFC West. They are back in the Bay for a home game against Seattle. And no, your mind's not playing tricks on you. This game did just happen on Thanksgiving night. Rematch not only gives the Niners a chance to grab control of that division, but also get to 10 wins on the season. Who better to talk to about it than the guy that'll be calling it? Joined now by Greg Olson, who will be in the booth with Kevin Burkhart on Sunday afternoon. All right, Greg, the old saying goes that division games are tough because the teams know each other. They get to play each other more often. You kind of have a feel for what each team's going to do, but this is this is game number five for Seattle and San Francisco since last season. And it, I mean, it's been all Niners average score of 30 to 14 in favor of San Francisco. They obviously just put one on them on Thanksgiving. Is there anything the Seahawks can do to make this a more competitive series in the second game? Yeah, listen, I, I think Seattle, you know, I think you have to be careful getting, you know, too tied up in the historical kind of matchups and, you know, who won last year. And I know they just played a couple of weeks ago on Thanksgiving. And obviously that was a pretty one-sided affair, but I think when you look at it, I think Seattle has enough guys to keep this more competitive, right? I think that they are disappointed how they played, you know, that, that Thursday night on Thanksgiving night, I think, you know, they, they kind of, even especially being at home, San Francisco kind of came in there and kind of blew their doors off and it wasn't really a competitive for much of the second half, I, I anticipate Pete Carroll's teams being a little bit more prepared. He he has a kind of track record of getting back on track. I mean, they've never lost four games in a row under his leadership. I mean, that's a pretty remarkable stat of just consistency and the ability to get back on track. But when it comes to San Francisco, I just think they're a hard matchup for everybody. I, I think they are when healthy. I think this version, if, if this this group, this version that we saw last week, if they stay healthy and they stay intact, I don't know if there's even a debate. They're the best team in the league. Um, now, does the best team in the league always win? Of course not. We, we see that time and time and again. But I think this is less about like, hey, Seattle doesn't match. I don't know how many teams really in the league match up with San Francisco to begin with. Yeah, you and you and KB got a, a very close look at it last week. I mean, six six touchdowns in a row against the best record in football. It obviously speaks for itself. But having a chance, and and you've watched them twice now, once in a loss, and then looking at their absolute best. You could go anywhere with this, but I mean, when they're clicking like they were against Philadelphia, I mean, what what impresses you the most if you can limit it to one thing? Oh man, I, I'm not sure with San Francisco if you can limit it to one thing. Right. I, you know, I think what stands out for them, just generally speaking, is no matter what personnel groups on the field, no matter which side of the ball is on the field, they are the most talented group of eleven at any point and really in any game. And I think that compared. That compiled with the great coaching. I think Steve Wilkes has done a great job with that defense. The secondary has really improved. I'd say that's kind of his big kind of he's put his thumb, his thumbprint on that defense and just seeing it from the secondary down when it always had been kind of a linebacker led group and obviously a ton of success with the previous coordinators. And then what we all know, Shanahan's running what I think is the best scheme in the league. I think what they're able to do protecting their protectors, the run advantage they gain compiled with all the talent 
it's just, I don't know where you start, right? So if, if I'm Seattle or I'm just anybody playing San Francisco, I'm saying to myself, okay, what hurts me the most? I look at that Philadelphia game. We were there. What hurt me the most? The one play touchdowns, the long touchdowns to Debo, the long touch, the long ball, you know, get you inside the 10 to, to Kittle. They have to, Seattle and everyone else who plays San Francisco the rest of the year, they have to find a way. If San Francisco is going to score on me, I'm going to make them run 10 plays. Let them let them just go a chunk a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time, and maybe I get a couple red zone stops. But the 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 notion that we're just going to keep letting them score in one play, we're going to let Debo Samuel break a touchdown, break a tackle, and run for a touchdown. The fact that we're going to let you can't, you just can't give them the explosive element. Now, easier said than done, but I think that to me is where it starts for Seattle. Put a lid. Maybe McCaffrey runs wild in the run game lead the clock, limit possessions, get a couple, maybe you get a turnover, maybe you win a couple red zones. And instead of them scoring 42, maybe somehow you can keep them in the mid to high twenties. And we saw Seattle's offense, you know, be able to put up some points last week, although they lost, um, you know, last Thursday to Dallas. That to me seems like the formula and, you know, whether or not you can execute, it's a different story. Of course, which, I think that the the storyline or, or the thing that people keep talking about coming out of that win against Philly is that these these guys are just amazing at yards after catch. Like you said, I mean, they can turn a pretty routine uh, reception into a, into a house call routinely. They do it all the time. I'm curious, between, between their physicality and then that ability, how much do you think of, of playing the 49ers is just about not getting worn out and, like, and letting those types of plays become backbreakers? I think it's critical, right? And I think aside from the skill, aside from the flashy plays and the highlights and what you see on the, you know, post-game recaps and on social media, this highlight-driven kind of way we consume football, in between all the highlights, they're the most efficient team in football on both sides of the ball, right? When you when you dive into their metrics of offensive efficiency, early down, run pass, play action, when you dive into all that, they are explosive and efficient and it's just i don't know what else that's the ultimate goal right and i think on defense they're the best open field tacklers in the league they don't they don't give up any yards after the catch and they don't and they give up the fewest amount of explosive plays so when you add all that up and you throw it listen can teams beat them yes we saw we saw them lose three games you know at one point in a row in the middle of the season i'm not saying that they're going to just show up and roll over everyone the rest of the year this is the nfl We've seen some of the best teams in the league get upset, get beat. This this is not college football. But having said that, to me, this is the hardest beat in the league. If you beat San Francisco, you're going to have to play your best game for four quarters, limit your mistakes, maybe force a couple mistakes from San Francisco. It's going to take a full effort um, to pull off a win against them just based on what we've seen these last couple weeks. You mentioned Seattle's game against Dallas a minute ago. And I look, I know moral victories aren't really a thing in the NFL, but I thought that was about as well as Geno Smith has played all season. We keep saying it. It's it's a heck of a lot easier said than done against San Francisco. But I mean, if, if they can keep him upright, if they can handle the Niners pass rush, I mean, is do you think you can, you can replicate the type of success he had the other night? I, certainly that's what, you know, Seattle is hoping. They're hoping that that is the sign of things to come. I know the offense had been kind of up and down the previous weeks. They weren't great in the loss, the last second loss to 
the Rams, although they had a chance to win it and they missed the field goal. Then, of course, you know, they had a tough night on Thanksgiving, as we just talked about against San Francisco. But they really bounced back. I mean, against a very good Dan Quinn defense in Dallas that has been one of the best units in the league all year, they were awesome. I mean, it, it took just an equally amazing performance from Dak Prescott and the Dallas offense to just kind of win a shootout. But if they can replicate that, and again, everything we're saying here, you know, oh, if you just score 35 a game, well, yeah, that right. sounds great. You know, but if they can get that Gino and they can get the ball spread around and that DK Metcalf and that production and Jackson Smith and Jigba and Tyler Lockett, I mean, they they got some weapons. If they can get Kenneth Walker healthy back at running back, hopefully he's able to play this week. Like they have some weapons. I think the point you made is can they block them, right? Can this, if they have to do it through the air, can they block them? Can they win a shootout where they've got to throw it 40 times and keep Geno Smith upright? That hasn't been necessarily the strength of this offense in, in the pass protection game. And they're playing against probably the best pass rusher, at least one of the top three in, you know, in Bosa. And, um, and he's got like four other first round, you know, first round picks along the front with him, with Armstead and the addition of Chase Young and, and Hargrave. And I mean, it's a loaded front. Everyone knows that. And, um, that to me is where they're going to have to figure out some things. I don't know if they want to just go four wide, spread them out, and pat. They're going to have to be creative on pass protection, chips, tight ends, play action, throw early. I don't know if you want to just drop back and pass against San Francisco's pass rush, um, especially with Seattle's kind of pass blocking situation. It's easy for like we we just saw it happen a couple weeks ago, right? It's easy for us to look at that first game and and say, oh, I, I don't know, Seattle, I don't know how you're going to pull this off." From the standpoint of of a player, and obviously these these coaching staffs get paid so well to to look at the tape and and find advantages or find things that that we didn't see. Does it does it potentially help? Seattle at all that they're that they have a game to reference that is so fresh I mean it's not like these teams have had a lot of time to change here since the last time they played yeah and I think the fact that they played you know two weeks ago give or take and um and just play each other you know three times last year and twice every other year in division there's gonna there's no secrets in game like the games like this there's no trickums there's no oh man we've never seen that coverage before we've never seen that they know what each other are going to do. They know what San Francisco's offense is going to look like. They know what they're going to run on defense and vice versa. So this game's really going to come down to, can you stop them? Can you score? Can you execute? Can you win some individual matchups? These, these division round games are never about outsmarting anybody, out tricking anybody. There's really no surprises at this point when you have such familiarity. So it's going to come down to what did, what did Seattle learn from their last? How can they play better? How can they win better matchups? How can they, protect the ball how can they pass protect how can you know just the basic elements of what makes good teams good and I think that's that's going to be the test and we'll see I they're going to be prepared right they're going to be prepared they have good players they have a lot of pride now it's going to be who comes out and plays the best and we see games all forever of teams that you just you just expect they're going to show up and win and the game doesn't turn out that way so that's why they play the game and uh Division opponents are always, always competitive. One last one for you. And I mean, we all know what Brock Purdy's doing. I know plenty of people want to argue about how much of it is him and how much of it is the star studded cast around him. I'm not as interested in that. I'm just curious. You've had a chance to, you've watched the Niners twice this year. You've had a chance to visit with Brock Purdy. 
he seems like such an understated guy, but I mean, the results on the field speak for themselves. I'm just curious what, what strikes you the most about, about what you've seen from him either as a player or just in the little bit of time that you've managed to to spend with him. Yeah. I think it's been cool for our crew because we called his first ever start his debut at home last year against you know, the Buccaneers and Tom Brady, and it was a big moment. And you know, we're all saying, oh my God, they're on their third quarterback. Who is this kid? And all of a sudden he lit him up. I mean, they, they blew him out. They won and, and he played well. And I think being able to kind of be along a lot of these different moments, him last year, obviously the setback in the NFC championship, suffering the injury. So we've kind of been along for the ride with him calling some of these marquee moments of his young career. And I think we go into and out of every game just saying the same thing. He's his decisiveness, his ability to process so quickly, his maturity, his it he has the feeling of a guy who's played a lot more than just a season and a half. And everybody you talk to there, whether it's Sam Darnold, who's the backup quarterback, or Kyle Shanahan or Greece, Brian Greasy, who's his quarterback coach, no matter who you talk to, they all say the same thing. There's like you can doubt him. You can look at his height. You can look at his stature, his physical. They said he is uncanny in his ability to process, to see, to eliminate bad looks, to get. And they said, you can coach that. And we've obviously continued. But he goes, he just has it. And he just has an innate ability to be a great decision maker and be able to process things very quickly. And when he makes a mistake, not make it again. And when you factor that and the scheme, he has enough talent. He has enough physical skills to make all the throws. I and mean, we see it every week. He is no longer a, a just a novelty story. And I, and I think we're going to hammer that again on the broadcast. Like this is no longer just a feel good, Mr. Irrelevant. Oh my God, look at him. Like this guy is a flat out player. He deserves as much credit. Does he deserve more credit than Christian McCaffrey or Bosa or, or Fred Warner? No, I, I think they have a lot of really amazing players. But he certainly doesn't deserve less credit just because he's in a good system with good players and a good coach. I, I think that's the part people are using against him. And I think it's unfair. I completely agree. I've, I've been saying all year. I mean, you can note the talent on the 49ers, but we also know these have been loaded teams for four or five years at this point, And we're seeing a level of production that wasn't there before Brock Purdy took over. So I completely agree with you. I hope it's a good one, Greg, uh, safe travels. I will check in with you on Sunday when this one wraps up, but as always, I appreciate it, man. You got it, man. Take care. Thanks. It says a lot about what's going on in the NFC these days that the Kansas city chiefs are playing the Buffalo bills this weekend. And it feels like we've hardly talked about it. Specifically with the circumstances, I'm calling this one the Panic Bowl. Bills at Chiefs, two teams that could desperately use a win, two teams that are very much not used to being subject to the whole backs against the wall narrative. They've controlled their divisions for the better part of the last five years. And let's let's be clear. I mean, six and six versus eight and four, these are definitely not bad teams, but it just speaks to how successful things have been in Buffalo and Kansas city, that there is an air of worry around this game as these two teams try to solidify their playoff positioning. It's actually the sixth game between the chiefs and the bills in the last four years makes sense. They've been running their divisions. So you play the team, you know, if you win your division, you play the teams that win the other divisions in your conference. There's also those two playoff games that they've played. So this is the yeah, sixth time in the last four years. And even more curious than that, this will be the fifth straight 
in the series that is played at Arrowhead Stadium, obviously a byproduct of the Chiefs controlling the road through the AFC playoffs. But therein lies the panic, or the worry at least. Let's start on the Chiefs' side of this thing. After that loss in Green Bay last week, they are third in the AFC pecking order. If they lose this one, they run the risk of losing ground that they cannot make up to either Miami or Baltimore. So if we squint, and there is there is a lot of season left, I don't want to say anything too definitive, but if we squint, we can see a world where the Chiefs have to go on the road in the playoffs, which they've never had to do during Patrick Mahomes' time as the starter. That's what makes this such a curious spot for them. Now, I will say, as Patrick Mahomes has pointed out already this week, it's not exactly unprecedented. It's easy to forget. It's it's not always going to be roses, even for a team as dominant as the Chiefs. In 2019, they rallied from 6-4 and four to go 12-4 and four and win the Super Bowl. And in 2021, they were actually 3-4 and four nearing the midpoint of the season. And then they ripped off a 9-1 and one run. They go 12-5. and five. They lose to Cincinnati in the AFC Championship game. So the Chiefs are actually really, really good at pulling things together down the home stretch, winning a lot of games heading into January and, and handling the rest of it in the playoffs. They've definitely earned the benefit of the doubt. But my counter to Patrick would be this. We're a little bit later on in the year than usual where the Chiefs figure things out. Like typically you're talking about taking your bumps in September and October and rounding into good form when December gets here. They haven't lost consecutive games in the second half of the season since 2018. That was his first year as the starter. Entering this year, they were 19-3 and in the month of December. Two of those losses, again, his first year as a starter. So every year since then, just one. Prior to Sunday, calendar did turn over to December. They are 0-1 in December. I know what month the losses happen is kind of arbitrary, but rounding into good form toward the playoffs is not. This is later in the year that we've typically seen the Chiefs still struggling to find their identity, still struggling to piece consecutive wins together. We should point out that the schedule eases up a lot after this. There's no one else above 500 the rest of the way. And I know the Bills are at 500, but there's there's not even a Josh Allen that you have to worry about from here on out. You get games against the likes of the Patriots and the Raiders. So we're not worried about the Chiefs' playoff spot. That's not what I'm saying. We are worried about them holding on to the AFC's top seed. And that does matter because at this point, it's starting to feel like a birthright. It's been half a decade since they haven't had control of the AFC playoffs all the way through. And that does feel like it's in jeopardy, particularly if they lose to Buffalo on Sunday afternoon. So if we're going to call it worry for the Chiefs, I think we can call it outright panic for the Buffalo Bills. And it does feel pretty justified. We know the storyline. They've been trying to break through to a Super Bowl appearance for four years at this point. And now, you know, th- this has been a team where at the start of the season, you say, okay, but what's going to happen in January? You can't take that for granted right now if you're the Buffalo Bills. This is an uphill climb just to get to the postseason. The Chiefs issues, that looks like first world problems compared to the possibility of the Buffalo Bills missing the postseason altogether. And in case you can't tell, you can feel the pressure up in Buffalo as recently as Thursday. Major exposés dropping about Sean McDermott's coaching methods. 
anonymous sources, the most the most entertaining types of stories to read, the ones with anonymous sources. Shout out Ty Dunn at Go Long. Go read it for yourself if you're curious. It's a long read, but an interesting read. It's it's not my job to confirm or deny how valid it is or or who said it or whether we should give it credence. It doesn't change the point that this is not the type of stuff that you want hitting the news cycle in the stretch run of, of the season with the playoffs potentially on the line. Sean McDermott having to comment on Thursday about September 11th. That sounds out of left field if you don't know what I'm talking about. So please just go read the story. I'm sure, I'm sure you'll enjoy, I'm sure you'll find it entertaining or, or revealing to some degree at the very least, the long and short of it is you can just tell that this is still a franchise that is struggling to cope with the final 13 seconds in that playoff loss to the chiefs. So what a fitting opponent to be up next on the schedule than the team that broke the collective brains, hearts, souls of the Buffalo bills and their fan base. You can't underestimate it. Bill's playoff chances, according to the New York times, they're not good right now. Sitting at 15%. A win on Sunday at Arrowhead doubles them up to 26%. A loss puts them damn near in the dirt down at 5%. It's too much to say that this game decides their postseason fate. But a win would go a long, long way to giving them life, giving them reason for optimism. As for the game itself, that's that's a lot of narrative talk. But I think it's warranted for a matchup like this. As for the game itself... It's so easy to get caught up in the in the quarterbacks. Of course, it's the best quarterback alive. And one of the guys that is, if there's anybody that's put up a challenge to Patrick Mahomes' throne, Josh Allen's definitely on the short list. I get why they get all of the oxygen in a matchup like this. I personally think it comes down to whichever team does the best job complimenting him. And this is what I this is what I go to when I look at this. The Chiefs are quietly running the ball fairly well since their bye week. And the Buffalo Bills have struggled against the run really since Matt Milano got hurt two months ago, a lifetime ago, it feels like. Philly put up 105 rushing yards on them in the game before the bye week. Chiefs also would probably be smart to stay out of obvious passing situations. There's a chance, it's not looking great, that left tackle Donovan Smith will play in this game. He's dealing with a neck injury could be uh, something worth monitoring if Patrick Mahomes' blindside is in trouble. Although, Isaiah Pacheco also dealing with a shoulder injury, but honestly, even if it means leaning on Jarek McKinnon, getting what you can out of Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, or even Keontae Ingram, the former Cardinal running back, is now on the roster in Kansas City. I look at the Chiefs and say, pound some air out of the rock here. You don't have to put this all on Patrick Mahomes. The running game has been there fairly consistently over the last three weeks, and the Bills have struggled with it a lot. Don't make Patrick Mahomes do everything in this game. Meanwhile, Josh Allen, fresh off one of his best ever games. Don't let the bye week distract you from how amazing he was against the Eagles. Bills have scored 30-plus in both of their games since Joe Brady took over as offensive coordinator. Ironically, they're leaning on the run a little bit more than they have as well, but this is a much more balanced, much more efficient offense since Joe Brady took over. Whether that's because Ken Dorsey left or not is irrelevant. The point is, back-to-back 
30 burgers against back-to-back good teams. I think that matters. I think this is an opportunity for the Chiefs to keep Josh Allen on the sideline. Like, you don't want to win a 13 seconds type of game here if you don't have to. I would try to pound the air out of the ball, keep Josh Allen hanging out over by the the bench warmers and just would win this thing as workmanlike and as blue collar as humanly possible. Fittingly, the Bills won this game at Arrowhead last year. It feels like such a tough place to beat the Chiefs, but Buffalo did do it with a timely fourth quarter interception of Patrick Mahomes last fall. So not saying it can't be done, but the Chiefs, unpredictability this year hasn't shaken my faith. Not yet. If the Bills manage to win this game, maybe we can revisit it, but I'm still at a place where I think the Chiefs at home at Arrowhead can get back on track and and move toward what we think of them as, which is winning games in December and getting ready to host playoff games at Arrowhead. I do think the Chiefs get this done. All right, let's move along to a cross-conference matchup. That would be the Baltimore Ravens hosting the surging Los Angeles Rams Ravens going on a late bye week. So it's been a minute since we've got to see them. Rams have won three straight. We've talked a lot about them this week. Felt like they were left for dead. All of a sudden they are right there in the NFC wildcard hunt. Meanwhile, the Ravens fighting with the dolphins and potentially the chiefs for the number one seed in the AFC. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this one just because we did talk to Daryl Johnston about it earlier in the week. If you want to hear a little more in depth about the matchup, I highly recommend you go listen to Thursday's show. Got into the breakdown there, but Moose mentioned it. I I want to bring up the, the most interesting aspect of this for me is just the chess match that I think is going to take place between Ravens defensive coordinator, Mike McDonald and his defense and pretty much everybody on the Rams offense, wherever you want to take it. Obviously, Sean McVay will have a big hand in that. Matthew Stafford, one of the most veteran quarterbacks in this league. The Rams offensive line, several interesting pieces there. We know the Ravens like to bring pressure from everywhere. Kyle Hamilton will probably have a hand in it. Kyle Van Noy doing his thing. How the Rams piece together their protection where they deal with the pressure, how quickly Matthew Stafford gets the ball out, how good of a job the Ravens do of getting to him. I think that's going to be everything in this matchup. And if the Rams don't do a good job of it, this could be another Ravens versus NFC game that gets wildly out of hand. Remember, Baltimore crushed Detroit. They crushed Seattle. Now they get a chance to play the Rams as well. And interestingly enough, Just by a quirk of the schedule, all of those games against these NFC playoff teams have come in Baltimore. This one does as well. I don't, I I, I just, I don't see it happening that often. I certainly don't see it happening three times in the same season where the Ravens just put up 35 and allow less than 10 to a playoff caliber team. I do think the Ravens are capable of handling business here. I think that defense is going to be a really stiff challenge for Matthew Stafford. We saw something similar. The Rams had early success against the Cowboys, and then slowly but surely, that game just got put away. The Cowboys wound up injuring Stafford, unfortunately, and winning that game by 20-plus. I could see the Ravens winning this game by 10 to 17 points because I do think the defense is that tenacious, and I think the Ravens can have success on offense. We'll see how it goes. Anything better than losing by 30 points would be an improvement for the Rams over their NFC brethren. We'll see how it goes. But I do think at home, 
the Ravens are a sound enough, complete enough team that they will be able to get to Matthew Stafford and put this game away. All right, we're coming to the end of the show, which means this is the fastest I will talk all episode. You know the drill. It's the hurry up offense. We've previewed the big, big matchups, but there's plenty more in the week 14 slate. We've got 10 more games to get to punctuated by a Monday night doubleheader. You know, I was I was getting kind of tired of them back at the beginning of the year, but yeah, bring it, bring it back in crunch time. I am excited for two games on Monday night. Plenty more football to talk about. My wonderful producers are going to give me three and a half minutes. I will take you through the rest of the Sunday schedule and into Monday night. Give you a little tidbit about every game as you move into your weekend and we get ready for week 14. So without further ado, we will start it right here with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at the Atlanta Falcons. Buccaneers have been out of the spotlight, it feels like, for for a month or more. But if they win this game, they do take over first place in the NFC South. Remember, this game's already taken place, and the Falcons should have won it a lot more convincingly than they did. They wound up winning at the buzzer. Bunch of Desmond Ritter turnovers left Tampa in the game. I'm trusting in Atlanta that Ritter can take care of the football. I think the Falcons keep it clean, and I do think they get the season sweep. Lions at Bears. Looks like it's going to be bare weather in Chicago on Sunday. Cloudy temperatures hovering around freezing. One thing I admire about the Lions, even though they're a dome team, I feel like they're well built for these types of environments. I don't think cold weather is going to mess their offense up or lead to bad production. I will take them to get the sweep over the Bears as well. Preferably a little less dramatic, I'm guessing they would prefer than the last game against the bears Colts at Bengals. How much more interesting does this game look after Jake Browning went off on Monday night? Colts are having a nice season. I always, I always feel like I'm disrespecting the Colts, but I just think the Bengals have more in the way of star power. I think this is an all around better team. The only question mark was Jake Browning. And if he plays anywhere near what he did against Jacksonville, I will take the Bengals to win this game. Speaking of Jacksonville, Jags at Browns. Trevor Lawrence practiced on Thursday because football players are aliens. I don't understand it. It gives the Jags an obvious leg up over the Joe Flacco-led Browns if Trevor can play. But you know what? All the injury stuff about Trevor clouded over the fact that the Jags defense looked suspect on Monday night. Browns backs are against the wall. They're at home. It's a desperate team. Give me Cleveland to find a way to muck it up and win the game. Panthers at Saints. I'll say the same thing for the Saints that I said for the Bucks last week. If you can't beat Carolina at home with your playoff hopes on the line, why should we even care? Why should we care what you do? The Saints should win this game or else they should think really hard about who they are, where they're going, what the plan is in the future. It's a game the Saints absolutely need to have. Texans at Jets, best vibes in the NFL in Houston versus the worst vibes in the NFL, the New York Jets. Gives me a little bit of pause that the game is outdoors in New York. The weather seems like it's been terrible for a month straight up there. It's still not enough to make me pick the Jets with all the Zach Wilson stuff going on. Ew, no thank you. Vikings at Raiders, Justin Jefferson is back. That in itself is enough to make me want to pick the Vikings. I'm I'm rolling with them. And how excited must all of Justin's fantasy managers be to get him back just in time for the fantasy playoffs? Congratulations, nerds. Broncos at Chargers. Imagine the dis- disillusionment for the team that loses this one. It's basically a playoff elimination game. Not mathematically, but hard to see the team that loses this game making the postseason. And look. Look at the seasons both of these teams have had. The loser of this game is going to be down bad. I hate myself for it, 
I will ride with Justin Herbert at home. I know that doesn't mean anything. I'm going to do it anyway. Make fun of me later. Titans at Dolphins. Monday night doubleheader. No way the surging Dolphins should lose this game. I'd go as far as to say with the number one seat on the line, if they lose this game, they're an unserious team. Let's wrap it up with the Packers at the Giants. This is how the NFL works. I know the Packers are hot. I know the Giants are a mess. I'm not calling for the Giants. There's the horn. All right. I, I was close. I'm not calling for the Giants to win this game, but the Gi- they had a bye week. They've had some time to look everything over. Tommy Cutlets is going to find a way to cover the six and a half point spread. So give me the Packers to win, but give me the Giants to look a lot better than they have for most of the season. I'm strangely looking forward to Giants Packers. I think that means I need help. That will do it for the show. As always, we appreciate it so much, y'all. We will be back on Monday to break down everything that happens in week 14. We'll have instant reaction from Rams Ravens. We'll have, we'll have, we'll talk to Greg and KB about 49ers Seahawks. Of course, we'll be here to break down Cowboys Eagles. We'll have Ralph Acchiano back on the show to do that. So much coming your way on Monday. Enjoy the games. In the meantime, please go find us on Spotify apple podcast there's a youtube channel maybe you've heard me mention it we appreciate it so much i hope you enjoy your week 14 and i will talk to y'all on monday